Hello and welcome to the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the autumn statement delivered 22nd of November of this year, 2023. And a bigger, I think, statement, a bigger statement of fiscal change than any of us were expecting. I'm joined today by three of my colleagues here at the IFS, Ben Zaranko, Tom Waters and Helen Miller. And we're going to be talking about the public finance changes, the spending changes, the tax and welfare changes that were unveiled by Jeremy Hunt. The big picture here is really the big picture we've seen for quite a while. We have a Chancellor who is really hemmed in by the difficult fiscal situation that we're in with uh, taxes high, debt and debt interest high, spending actually as a fraction of national income high, partly because of that high level of debt interest spending, but no no room for or very little room for manoeuvre. Nevertheless, he managed to find some room for manoeuvre or at least room to make some fairly headline-grabbing tax cuts, though as we'll hear, that was largely funded by a combination of bigger than expected tax increases elsewhere and bigger than intended cuts to spending on public services. Tom, should we start with the the big news, the the cut to national insurance contributions, which was clearly the the thing that the Chancellor wanted to be the headline. 2p off the main rate of employee national insurance contributions. How much difference is that going to make to people over the next year and so? So in total, the next changes, we're looking at something in the order of £10 billion. So if you're a basic rate taxpayer, it depends exactly how much you earn, but you might be looking at a tax bill that's a few hundred pounds lower. That's the kind of order of magnitude we should be thinking about. And £10 billion is certainly a tax cut that's pretty significant, but it comes against the backdrop of this tax freeze, income tax and national insurance freeze, which is raising quite a bit more than that. And so there's more of a tax rise going on than a tax cut from what was announced yesterday. The point being that the freezing of income tax thresholds and allowances is probably going to increase taxes overall by more than four times what that national insurance cut is saving people. And it turns out that national insurance and that particularly income tax threshold freeze is a much bigger tax rise than was intended when, certainly when Rishi Sunak initially announced it back in 2021, when he thought it might raise £8 billion or so. We now think over six years, it's going to raise something like £50 billion. And one of the interesting things about this cut to national insurance contributions, though, is it's a cut to national insurance contributions. We've never seen one of those before. Um, We've had cuts to basic rates of income tax and so on over the years. But I think certainly in the last 40 years, no one's ever cut national insurance before. Yeah, you don't see a lot of them in the wild. Um, yes, yeah, so if you rewound back to the mid-70s, you had a base rate of income tax that was in the mid-30%, and national insurance was about 5% or something. And over time, it's very steadily been the income tax number comes down, the national insurance number goes up. And uh, apart from a slightly funny blip a couple of years ago with the health and social care levy that was sort of uh, came in and then dis- never really came in properly, then disappeared, there's never been, at least not in the last half century or so, being a, uh, a cut in national, in national insurance rates. So this certainly is a change of direction. I think it's interesting because I think people think of the, the income tax number is very salient. People, people really know they pay 20p in the pound and perhaps are less aware about the national insurance contributions they're making. But Helen, I think that if the Chancellor was going to do an income tax cut or a national insurance cut, we think probably the national insurance cut was a good choice for once. 
yes. And it, I think it's worth saying, telling people what the difference really is between income tax and national insurance. So the big difference is that um, national insurance contributions are charged on earned income, so the income you get from working, but they're not levied on um, other forms of income, including dividends or pension income. This is a cut that will, it's, it's a bit cheaper because it applies to their stuff and it's more focused on workers. So it'll, as the OBR suggested, it'll boost some labour supply and it's not increasing the difference between different forms of working. It will be reducing those differences in some cases. Yeah, and one of the problems, of course, with national insurance contributions, you say it's only levied on earned income. It gives people incentives to take income in other ways. It favours pensioners over people of working age and so on. And actually, one of the remarkable things about the changes over the last 15 years or so is that with the increases in personal allowances for people of working age, for taxes being much bigger than for pension age people, and some of these changes in national insurance contributions, we've really levelled the playing field between pensioners and those of working age. So the pensioners still pay less on their income than people pay on their earnings, but the difference is much smaller than it was. And that's very different to what we've seen happening on the benefits side. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But before we go to that, uh, Helen, the other big tax change Charles was very keen to announce was this thing called full expensing uh, incorporation tax, and in particular, making a policy that he announced back in March for three years, making it something permanent. Could you just tell us what First of all, just what is this thing, full expensing, and why, why are people, why are businesses so excited about it? Yeah, this is definitely on the technical end of the policies that are announced. So when a business does some investment, it basically gets to deduct those investment costs from its profits when it calculates how much corporation tax it's going to pay. And under the kind of system we had before this measure was announced, then up to the first million pounds, you could immediately deduct that expense. So you've 100% of that expense got deducted in the first year, any spend you did over that was deducted a little bit over time each year. So as your asset, your imagine you bought a tractor, as it depreciated, you deducted some cost each year. This full expensing policy now means that all of the qualifying investment, all of the investment that gets counted under this policy can be immediately deducted when, when, when calculating corporation tax. So you can immediately deduct the cost of your full tractor or your I don't know, new wind farm or whatever it happens to be when you're calculating corporation tax. So companies are excited about that basically because it means they get to deduct their investment costs sooner. So if you're making a big investment over multiple years, rather than having to wait many years to deduct those costs, you can now deduct them all at once. So it is a big deal in the sense that it's a beefy change to the tax system. It's not actually as big as the Chancellor I think would like us to believe. So he said three times, in fact, that it was the biggest cut to business taxes in modern British history. I think that's not a fair representation of what the policy actually is. I think part of what's going on here is that the policy is expensive up front in terms of what the government actually writes on its scorecard because as you're giving these new investment deductions all up front. But if you look through the timing effects that are going on here, the fact that the government will now be giving allowances up front instead of the stream of allowances, if you look through that timing, then the policy actually is much cheaper, more like a few billion pounds, orders of like one to three billion. So it's a big deal, but not as big as the Chancellor would like us to believe, I think. You can hear the kids, um, can't you? Sorry. Not as big as your daughter would like us to believe either. <laughs> I know, so Some listeners sit, not as big fans as full expensing as others. I think, I, th- I think if the Chancellor could have inoculated children and their parents against illness, he would have done much more for the economy than, than anything else that, he's, that he managed to do in, in this autumn statement. Ben, we've heard about um, Thomas described £10 billion or so cut in 
national insurance contributions. Helen has talked about what, at least in the short to medium term, is a £10 billion a year cut to corporation tax. How did the Chancellor suddenly find £20 billion quid knocking around? I think the answer to that question is both quite complicated if you want to get into the specifics, but also really quite simple. Basically, inflation is coming in higher than we thought and it's expected to stay higher for longer. That's pushing up tax revenues by quite a significant amount. The OBR think that by 2027, we'll be raising something like 59 billion more in tax than they previously thought. That that's pushes a lot. Up, that's a lot. It's a big number. It pushes up spending by a bit. So spending on debt interest, spending on social security by about 32 billion. You'll notice that's smaller than the 59. So he's left with this windfall. That windfall exists on paper, but it really only exists because public service budgets are not being compensated for the higher costs that they'll face as a result of higher inflation. Rather than compensate those public services, the Chancellor chose to spend that money on tax cuts. In fact, of the windfall, if you want to call it that, he received, he chose to spend 96 of it. So that's really the story behind the infl- behind the autumn statement. There was a big windfall from inflation and the Chancellor used it to cut a few high profile taxes. So the corollary of that must be lower spending on public services into the future. That's right. The at least real in real terms, terms. The real terms value of public service budget, so the purchasing power, how much a hospital can buy in terms of goods, services, drugs, staff, whatever it is, or schools or police services, will be lower because they'll face higher costs. And that those numbers are quite big, actually. They almost match the tax cuts one for one. So by the end of the forecast and much into the middle or towards the end of next parliament, the real terms value of public service budgets is now something like £20 billion lower than it was than they were in March. So and- that's £20 billion lower than today or £20 billion lower than the intention in March was for five years hence? The latter. So budgets are going to be at £20 billion less generous in real terms than the Chancellor had originally said he wanted to have them be. And rather than maintain their value in real terms, so maintain the generosity of budgets he previously thought was appropriate, he decided to use that money for tax cuts instead. So can you give us a sense of scale here? How, how tough is that going to be for public service. In a world in which this really happens, I think it's worth saying to listeners, we are not terribly convinced this is really going to happen. But if you follow the arithmetic and it really does happen, how tough would this be? If you follow the arithmetic, some bits of the public sector are in for a really tough time. If you look beyond the next financial year, so the government currently has detailed budgets set out for departments up until March 2025. After that point, No details are nailed down. That will all have to wait until the spending review, which we're due next year. But those plans imply that some areas of government, things like local government, justice, the Home Office, HMRC, the court system, those areas could be facing real terms cuts of something like 3% in real terms per year. That's ballpark the sorts of cuts that George Osborne implemented during the coalition government during his big austerity program. So this is a return to the era of very tight spending plans that we saw in the 2010s. The difference being when David Cameron and George Osborne came in, those budgets had been rising steadily for a decade. Now we're going to be trying to make those cuts in theory 
after a decade in which they've been squeezed. So it's very hard to see how we could maintain the quality and the range of public services that we enjoy now. Not to say that all public services are performing fantastically, but they're likely to deteriorate further if we continually squeeze those budgets, unless we can somehow magically achieve some monumental productivity improvements in the public sector, which I'm sure the Chancellor and the Prime Minister would love to see. But those are very difficult to see uh, how they might materialise, particularly anytime soon. Yeah, uh, a, a, a real challenge. And I think one of the reasons why I think we have to take these numbers with a bit of a pinch of salt. Uh, we did see, I mean, austerity did happen. And so those cuts have happened once, but uh, from a much higher base than we are um, at the moment. Um, so that, that's the, a very broad level, the, the story on public um, spending. There's also some pretty serious cuts in capital spending penciled in by the Chancellor. He's keeping the capital budget flat cash for five years, I think, is the, is the proposition. So that takes investment spending down well below where it is now. That's right. Capital spending, so investment spending, was planned to be frozen in cash terms in March. The Chancellor has maintained that assumption, no extra money provided, despite the fact that inflation is now set to be much higher. That will see investment fall from what is objectively quite a high level by recent UK government standards, but fall very sharply and very steadily over the coming years, both in real terms and as a percentage of national income. And I think one way to illustrate just how big those planned cuts are is that if the Labour Party wins the next election and it comes in and it decides to implement its £20 billion green investment plan and it adds £20 billion to those those plans which it inherits, that still wouldn't be enough to stop investment falling over the next parliament. Those cuts are so big that it would take more than £20 billion to offset them. That's what we're going to be seeing over the coming years if these plans are implemented. And it's, again, it's difficult to see how do we do all the things that the government wants to do? How do we invest towards the net zero transition, build 40 new hospitals, deliver the defence strategic review and build all these new roads in the north as part of Network North and upgrade our transport infrastructure whilst making those cuts? It's very difficult to see how you can do that without something somewhere giving. Helen, one of the things that could give is more tax, presumably. You've pointed out on a number of occasions that we're not terribly highly taxed by international standards. Nevertheless, our tax burden is going up towards its highest level in the UK uh, that, that we've ever seen. Is there space, given all of the pressures that Ben has just outlined, could we have higher taxes? So I think the short answer is yes. As you just said, lots of European countries managed to have higher taxes than us and survive. So it's certainly, in that sense, possible. Of course, worth pointing out, just narrowing on the politics of this, we've just said that the government has basically funded these tax cuts by pencilling in spending cuts. And we're concerned that the spending cuts won't actually be materialised. Of course, it'd be very hard to undo the tax cuts we've just seen. I think it'd be hard for the government to undo full expensing businesses have got used to this idea pretty quickly. And of course, they could say we're taking it away again. I'd be very surprised if they did. They could increase national insurance rates again and undo that. I think that might be politically difficult, though. So in, in one sense, it, it might be quite, it might actually quite naturally end up being the case they don't manage to pull, pull out their spending cuts, but it'd be hard for them to undo these particular tax cuts. So that's one political point on that. Of course, more generally, the government raises about a trillion pounds a year. We've got a bunch of other taxes. There are a whole ton of ways in which they could raise revenue. They could raise revenue through income tax or VAT or capital taxes or 
council tax or corporation tax rates or something else. In that, they've got lots of options. What many people have heard me say many times before is that if they're thinking about taxes, they shouldn't just be thinking about the level, but also the design of those taxes, because we know, as we said for decades, there are lots of ways in which the taxes are uh, problematic in their design. So we could improve them along the way as opposed to just be ratcheting them up. But I think in some ways, the bigger the state gets and the, the more we're raising in tax, the more important it becomes that we do it in a sensible way. Yeah. If, if you've got more tax, it's more important that the taxes as well, the taxes are well designed. We, uh, I can't remember. I'm sure we've had an IFS zooms in on exactly that topic in the past, and we'll probably have more of them in the future. Just take it from us. You could do this a lot better. Tom, Ben has talked a lot about public service spending, spending on how we're going to be squeezing spending on quite a lot of public services going forward. But there are a couple of quite big announcements on welfare spending in the in, in the autumn statement. One of them was just the confirmation that benefits and pensions are going to go up in line with inflation in the term as far as benefits, uh, working age benefits are concerned and in line with earnings as far as uh, pensioner benefits are concerned. Yeah, that's right. There have been lots of stories before that maybe benefits would be uprated with the lower rate of inflation from October, which would have meant basically a 2%, a permanent 2% real cut to the benefit system. And the Chancellor said he had heard these rumours, who knows where they come from, um, but he was going to do the standard thing, which is uprated with September inflation. And then, yes, for pensioners, they got the full triple lock, which I think is about 8, 8.5% this year. And that means that in that sense, things are on the sort of the standard course that they're set for benefits. Those kind of weren't really reformed, so to speak. That's just a confirmation of what was already penciled in. But instead, we did have a couple of reforms, one looking at housing benefits. So we could talk a bit about that. So in the housing benefits system, if you're a private renter, the maximum amount of support you can get to help with your housing is capped depending on where you live in the country, depending on how big your household is, with something called the Local Housing Allowance, LHA. And those have been frozen based on 2019 rents for a few years. And so that's had the effect of a a pretty substantial real terms cut because rents have risen very quickly and they've raced ahead of, certainly raced ahead of a freeze. And so there's, in in, in real terms, the maximum amount of support you can get has steadily dwindled. And the Chancellor said, we're going to put those back to the 30th percentile of rents as they now stand, which will amount to about a billion pounds of extra spending. But then they'll just freeze them again. And so we're going to essentially be just repeating the process we've been in over the last few years where rents go up, but the maximum support you can get stays the same. We're just restarting the clock on that. And it's worth saying, just listeners to understand, this is a lot of money. The, The first thing that I think surprises people, surprises me, is that four in 10 private renters and their private renters, what, 15% of the population, something like that? So four in 10 of them are receiving some kind of help with their rents through this local housing allowance. And we're spending how many billion on it? Um, That is not a number I have immediately to mind, I'm afraid. (laughs) Well, we'll be sacking Tom later. Uh, but it's certainly it's certainly north of 10 billion. I mean, this is a big amount of money that we spend on local housing allowance all, uh, and a lot of people receiving it. And so these reforms really matter. Uh, and as Tom w- w- was saying, we got to this situation where a tiny fraction of properties were actually, could you get the full amount of local housing allowance to cover your rent? I think your work suggests only one in 20 properties that are available for rent are a low enough rent that you could actually get the rent 
covered by local housing allowance. Exactly. And that number was, yeah, it's now about, yeah, about 5%. It was sort of 20, 25% at the beginning of the pandemic. So just in the space for a few years, the share of properties you can afford using your local housing allowance has just basically completely evaporated because new rents are rising so quickly. Should, we should say that's the new rental properties, which are more expensive than people who have been in, in their home for a while. Absolutely. But and again, as you say, we're, we're just going to go through this this particular treadmill again as we're, we've, we've updated to 2023, but that's going to stay stuck at 2023 levels until the next time the system becomes unsustainable. The, the other significant reform, actually, I, I think, announced was about how uh, people are assessed for incapacity benefits. Those are the benefits you get uh, if you're out of work and are sick, too sick, potentially, to work. Could you just take us through what those changes were? Yeah, so the background here, I think, is quite important. If you look over the past 10 years or so, the number of people who are getting incapacity benefits and are assessed as having a severe level of incapacity has, has, has about doubled from a little over 1 million to getting on for 2, 2.5 million. And again, that's a lot. I mean, they've more than doubled yeah, in 10 years. Yeah, in 10 years. And you'd think people. we were getting healthier as we get richer and so on, but more yeah. than doubled in 10 years. Astonishing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's pretty striking. And so I think part of the motivation for this reform is to try and put a bit of a lid on those numbers. And so the way the government is looking to do it is when you go for this assessment, you get assessed for different things. Are you able to move around? Are you able to uh, reach for things and sit down? Are you, what, what, do you have uh, problems to do with social interaction? They're going to tighten that assessment, particularly the ones that are related to moving around and make it harder, essentially, to qualify for more severe levels of incapacity. And the OBR reckon that will be 370,000 fewer people into this group, this more severe incapacity group. That's basically enough to hold the number steady. It won't actually start to reduce it relative to where it is now. It just stops any further any further increase. So we're still talking about very large numbers of people getting these incapacity benefits. And the point about being in that more severe group is, A, you get about 390 quid a month more in benefit than if you're in a, a group which is judged less incapacitated. And secondly, you've got many fewer demands on you to look for work or, or be ready for work. You can essentially, unlike someone who's unemployed, who will be hassle and hassle until they get a job, you'll essentially be left largely to your own devices if you're in that group. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And I think it's quite notable, the, the chance to kind of frame this a bit about getting people back to work, making work pay, that sort of thing. OBR's assessment is, yes, it will reduce the number of people in that group, getting the extra 400 or so quid a month by about 370,000. But employment only goes up by about 10,000 in their estimation. And so we're only talking about a few percent of those affected actually getting into work. For most people, it will just mean a lower amount of benefit receipt and a little bit more hassle from, from the job centre. Yeah, we'll wait and see what the effect of that is. What What we do know is that Reform after reform to both incapacity benefits and disability benefits have struggled to stem that uh, increasing number of people who are claiming and being deemed eligible for the benefits. Ben, we've talked about quite a lot here, what's happening to spending, what's happening to tax, what's happening to welfare and so on. But all of this, the Chancellor has claimed he can do within his fiscal rules, his binding rule being the one that says debt needs to be falling in the fifth year of the forecast period. And it, it is on the forecasts, but only just. Yes. So the, the first thing to say is that 
the debate in the run-up to this awesome statement has been dominated by these sort of insufferable debates about how much headroom there might be and whether the Chancellor's going to spend his headroom and whether he's got a pre-election war chest and all this unhelpful sort of discussion. The Chancellor has a, I think we'd agree, a, a pretty poorly designed fiscal rule. I think it's broadly sensible to want to have debt falling. Specifying it in terms of the fall between year four and year five of the forecast is suboptimal. It's extremely sensitive to what you assume will happen to nominal growth between those two years. It's extremely sensitive to what numbers you pencil in, for example, what you're going to spend in five years' time relative to four years' time. For those reasons, it's quite easy to game. Now, the Chancellor back in March was on track to meet that target by six and a half billion pounds. Based on the OBR's forecast yesterday, he's on track to meet that now by £13 billion. So that's going to happen a year later. The forecast has rolled forward a year. In the grand scheme of things, that's basically nothing. On average, chancellors have tended to build in a buffer of uh, more than double that, £27 billion against their um, targets. It would take the OBR to... um, revise their nominal growth assumption for that final year down by half a percent and that headroom vanishes. That's before we talk about the fact that fuel duty inevitably is not going to go up in April. I think there's a risk here that by spending, as I said earlier, by spending 96% of his windfall and by leaving himself such a a really thin margin against his self-imposed fiscal targets, come the spring, what happens if I don't know, let's say inflation comes back down even faster than we currently think. Let's say Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak's plan works and inflation falls really quickly. That could be bad news for the public finances. That could more than eliminate the Chancellor's quote-unquote headroom and he'll be left in the spring facing potentially some unpartable decisions. So it, it doesn't strike me as a particularly sensible way to set policy, the sort of chasing the model, chasing the headroom and spending as much as, as the OBR's forecasts say that you can. But the Chancellor is, yes, continuing to stay within his fiscal rules. Indeed, here at the IFS, we consider £13 billion pounds <laughs> to be essentially nothing. £13 billion here, £13 billion there, and maybe eventually speak serious money. But the point is, that, of course, that's out of a debt of well over two trillion pounds and as Ben was suggesting incredibly uncertain what's going to happen over that period so 13 billion is is disappearingly small in terms of the likelihood of really making meeting this rule and and, and actually Ben what we got as well was something that you've written about recently which is that as soon as uh, a chancellor gets a little bit uh, of good news tends to spend it all up front and then as we've seen this this time round potentially promise some unspecified pain at some unspecified time in the future. Whereas when he gets some bad news, which we had last time round, he says, I'll just accept I'm going to be borrowing a bit more. And that is one of the reasons why debt and debt interest and so on is so high right now. Exactly. I mean, cast our minds back to a year ago and Jeremy Hunt came in in tumultuous circumstances, but the economic and fiscal outlook had materially worsened. He did announce some tax rises. Most of them were just reversing what Uh, his predecessor had put in. But he basically relaxed the government's fiscal rules, said he was happy to borrow more. This this has come along, we're going to borrow to absorb the shock. And he let the public finances worsen in response to that. And that may well have been the sensible thing to do. But he's not behaving symmetrically. Now that things are turning out slightly better than expected, he's spending all of it. He's gleefully announcing tax cuts 
I know, just in time, probably for the next election. Oh, how so, cynical of How cynical, I know. But it's, it's, it's impossible, I think, to fully understand or try and interpret this fiscal statement without thinking about the fact that I think, it, in fairness, the Chancellor has one eye on the UK's long-term growth prospects, things like full expensing are sensible for that reason. But rushing through a next cut that comes in by January, some of this clearly feels motivated by the politics rather than maybe some of the economic fundamentals, I think it's fair to say. Indeed. And Helen, perhaps the, 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 the last word for you, given the politics, what chance that um, fuel duties are going to go up next April, as is assumed in all of the numbers that we've been talking about? Zero. Just zero. Right? I mean, is there anybody who wants to take a bet out that fuel duty will increase? I, good luck finding that person. Fuel duties haven't increased since, what, 2010? So I think the idea that the first increase in fuel duties is going to come a few months before an election is, yeah, it's not going to happen. And therein lies exactly one of the reasons why when I appeared on Sophie Ridge's programme on, on Autumn Statement Day and she asked me about the numbers and I'm afraid I said some of them are rather made up and indeed some of them are rather made up because they assume that uh, fuel duty won't only rise next April but the f- April after that and every April uh, into the distant future. And as we've heard from Ben, they also assume we can uh, make some pretty remarkable cuts to public service spending over this period as we've heard from Tom, there's some pretty big welfare changes going in both directions. We don't know what next will happen with taxes, but the amount that we're going to get from the tax policies that we've been suing over the last couple of years will depend on inflation. And we don't know what's going to we don't actually know what's going to happen with inflation over the next few years. And one of the big changes to the public finance numbers are simply down to the fact that the OBR has changed its forecasts about what's going to happen to inflation over the next few years, and that will change again. So we've definitely got a um, very mobile target here. And the problem, as Ben was indicating, is that we are so close to missing that target. Any degree of mobility at all is pushing policy off course. So we could, and I'm very tempted to spend much longer talking about these these issues, but but we will spare spare you that. If you do want to see and hear more, there's lots of additional information on the IFS website about this year's autumn statement, both in written form and in presentation form. So do take a look of that. So thanks ever so much to Tom and to Ben and to Helen. All four of us have had extraordinary small amount of sleep over the last 24 hours. So I hope we were at least vaguely coherent in this conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening to us. Do visit our website, www.ifs.org.uk. If you do want to support us further and considering how much work we've done over the last 24 hours, I do think you should, uh, do consider becoming a member for as little as £10 a month. You can find out more in the episode description or on our website. Uh, We'll see you next time. 